0: Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We're going to continue the Eisner-Miller conversation from the great Eisner-Miller book, uh, the tongue-in-cheek Hitchcock true foe of the comic book medium. But before we do that, I want to invite you guys to like, follow, and subscribe, uh, comment on these videos, and hit that bell icon to notify you when we have new videos out there. suitable amount of copies of this Eisner-Miller book are out there in the wild. You see, I got mine for that $4 Uh, doorbuster bargain but uh, you can't take for granted that the stuff that we talk about is going to be available easily on eBay and Amazon at your local comic shop you hit that notification button you get first dibs on the books that we're talking about because they will disappear off the internet by that evening if they are uh, out of print or uh, if they are close to being out of print and if you watch these videos to the end what that does is it pushes our video content out to more of the comic book watching loving YouTube audience who might not be familiar with the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. And that helps us boost our numbers. And we are uh, in the in the uh, presence of creating a, uh, an empire of a Cartoonist Kayfabe army. We're happy to accept your help in building that army. But uh, where we left off, Jimmy, part number six, what we're doing is going through about five chapters of video. You know, there's 30 pieces to this. Quick chapters, you know, a couple pages here or there with lots of great imagery, and where we're starting off today, part six, inside the master studio. Frank Miller took a trip to Bo- Boca Raton, man, to go hang out with Junior Soprano himself, man. <laughs> Will Eisner at his studio space, and uh, they're talking about a light box that we're not seeing the photo of in this book, which is a tragic, uh, unfortunate piece. Hey,
1: I do want to set the tone of where this studio is. Yes. Behind an unassuming door among rows of lawyers, doctors, and dentists' office. So it's like a, an a, office a, a park. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In, uh you know, in, in Florida somewhere. Uh, kind of funny to see Will Eisner's studio couched in that kind of a, a business
0: area. It's it's so smart, you know, like just like with, what, the stuff that we learn about home ownership and the stuff that you learn about business when your accountant is like, you need to be spending some more money, man. You need to be spending some more loot. Go get an exterior spot pay some rent and some exterior space. All the utilities go to the business. The rent is deductible from the business. Makes perfect sense. And Eisner has a vast bibliography that's probably all in the black. You know, uh, mileage may vary in terms of what the income is on each and every one of those books. But I'm sure they're all in the black. And he's got a bunch of them.
1: It makes me think of, uh, like, when we visited Jeff Smith and Cartoon Books Studios, where it's like you know, it's not a huge library that Jeff Smith has, but it's being printed and uh, translated all around the world. So, you know, it may be one book, but 30 editions and 30 business deals and and all of this sort of like the business side, like literally the business side of publishing, self-publishing, controlling your copyrights. And uh, and I get that impression with Eisner that, you know, these works are being translated. They are being published internationally. It's not one edition that comes out when he has a new book. And, uh, and they, they'll talk about that a little bit, you know, like pitching to these different, uh, different publishers and his layout stage and things like that.
0: You also get different kinds of uh, insurance potentials, like if you work off-site, man. See, that's the cool thing about this book is like, we have the Eisner-Miller conversation, we have our conversation. So, like, a lot of business insurance will not be done if it's at a business spot that you also live at because the liability of something could go wrong 24 hours a day with your ass you know what I'm saying like with you like playing around with things or doing doing stuff like that easier to get certain kinds of business insurance off-site for your to protect your artwork stuff like that uh, let's see they're talking about ink care
1: in the beginning you know a little bit of a little bit of the real technical stuff And Eisner's current uh, story he's doing with ink washes and he uses the uh, the dirty ink water where he's rinsing out his brush Talks about dipping his brush in every two or three strokes of, uh, after ink puts it in the water. I just did a big brushed piece this week doing the exact same thing. Kind of loved it. Cause the carbon builds up on the brush. Yeah. And I knew that part, but uh, I don't typically dip my brush in water. Every I was doing it every, I tried to do it every three, I would lose track sometimes, but I uh, really liked working that way. Was able to ink for a couple hours without actually stopping and cleaning the brush completely. And, uh, now I have the, dirty water to do an ink wash with, which I was also tempted to try to work that method in just from uh, reading this interview.
0: Well, let me ask you this, Jimmy. Do you use Higgins? (laughs) Because
1: that's what Wisner uses. I uh, I certainly do not. Uh, I'm surprised by the inks they talk about here. Although Miller does bring up the Doc Martin high carb ink, which uh, I have used some of the Doc Martin ink. For that
0: reason, I think it's a little bit uh, thicker, more consistent. Makes me wonder if the Higgins uh, formula was different back in the day, but there was like a piece of alchemy that like people would do with it. And uh, it's like you leave the cap off your Higgins for like two days or something. And then it actually turns into real ink and not just, Yeah, a little uh... bit
1: of that water evaporates and you're left with that organic matter. I threw out my uh, longtime inkwell this week. Because if it goes too long, you end up with sludge. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> like know? it's like
0: a goddamn clot <laughs> coming out of that shit, man.
1: Yeah, I picture, like, the tar fields or so- something in uh, L.A. where it's like, that stuff gets nasty it's and so, stinks. It stinks it's real bad,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, ink is It's carbon,
1: ball. it's the carbon. And they get into uh, impressionism again, you know, kind of laying out these scenes and how much you really need to do and uh, Miller talks about that was a big thing early on was you needed to be able to draw your rooms, you know, for establishing shots, and how at some point he got bored doing that. Because unless you're drawing, you know, something like Frank Lloyd Wright settings, uh, it can get boring. And I think of Electra lives again in some of the backgrounds and like the brownstone, Murdoch's brownstone, where we're walking upstairs and he's got the elaborate bathroom and stuff all depicted. And uh, whenever he's describing like that's a skill you had to learn as a young cartoonist I feel like that's where it's on display True. and probably the reason he got sick of it
0: <laughs> yeah so so what do you do uh, like like stagecraft you have a uh, Tiffany lamp with a doily on it uh, that probably let you know it's not a, a white trash kid's house. W- who wears his baseball hat on backwards, as Eisner says, unless he's breaking in. Unless he's breaking in, as, <laughs> when Miller chimes yeah. in. <laughs> they they do
1: have some fun back and forths along those lines. Like like very different mentalities of the kind of characters they're uh, thinking about. Yeah. And I love like there's a picture. If you go back one page, there's a picture of the uh, the wash. I just love that. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's such a beautiful image.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the point of the bringing up the wash was how uh, Miller was astonished by the kind of depth of field that Eisner was creating by kind of just drawing in the wash. So the l- black line would be specific to the characters and maybe a foreground element, like a table or something like that. Everything else told in wash to create that kind of separation, a little bit of 3D. I would point people
1: at some of the Warren magazines, the black and yeah. white magazines, because you would see guys like there's that Ditko collection that blew my mind whenever I first saw it because there are washes in there and Ditko's doing the washes, I presume, and they're amazing. And it's yeah. like, it's so different than I just think of line work. And whenever, like, you get a guy who's been doing line work for decades and then he does a beautiful wash, it's, it's something to behold. And it does make me wonder, like, there, there's a little bit more drawing in that wash technique than i would think you know it's not necessarily painting and roy, that's what eisner describes a little bit here
0: roy, roy crane will do that stuff with the duo tone yeah you know and create that depth we'll, we'll look in more of that stuff eventually also and it's a good
1: example of uh what they're describing they, they use the word impressionistic and i i feel like that's an incorrectly used art term here but it's this idea of less is more you know like there's a lot of detail that's not shown in that image of cars passing each other or that helicopter silhouette in the back but you're getting the you know what you're looking at
0: yeah and i think it's like getting into even more specifics of like you take this tree out it's you know like this tree makes it la or west coast or something
1: miller talks about how that applies to the speed of the reading Yes, you know if he's gonna have a 13 page chase scene or something like that this helps
0: yeah, this is where we get into that that detail conversation about density of line uh, versus detail. Because like, what what guys are focusing on is drawing every window, and I like they, they both shit on that. Yes. Like, like you know, that's that's unnecessary. That's vulgar. They do um, bring up reference though, like
1: Miller's saying, you know, if you're doing 480 BC, what, what's a soup ladle look like then? And you can stylize it. But this idea of reference is something that I see again and again with these interviews of like uh, previous generations of cartoonists. They talk about having a morgue file, like a lot of these how-to books, that's that's in chapter one uh, for reference. And it's not a conversation I hear anymore, except like maybe you photo reference too much or you don't use the first Google image search result. but. It's not a conversation I hear much. And in old interviews, like I would hear about artists that would go talk to Neil Adams and he'd be like, you gotta look up a window. Nobody even knows how to draw what a window looks like. Right. Uh, it's, it seems like that was a different value.
0: Yeah, and where my head is at lately, like I've been laying out the first issue of uh, the, the, the next round of uh, Red Room Comics, and I was breezing through it. And I realized the reason that I'm doing that is because I'm, I'm uh, drawing the, the roughs for the characters. And I'm just putting in the perspective grid lines in the back because I'm kayfabe in those backgrounds due to, to be in their words, impressionistic for the backgrounds, because that's of all the stuff we've been looking at lately. That's the stuff that, that I'm placing value in that, that I'm, that I'm finding attractive. They bring up Katsuhiro Otomo in here and at a certain point uh, Miller's like, "What, what am I doing? Going to school, going to drawing class? Like, you know, it's, it's beyond a comic. And pacing comes up in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And Miller's you can find video of him talking this exact soundbite where, you know, you could put density of word on a page to slow somebody down. You could put density of line. But he cites uh, Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes as being a kind of art style that dazzles the eye, that makes the person want to linger on the page a little bit more. And I think that that's kind of like what you get here. Like, that stops me in my tracks. I'm looking at this for a minute.
1: Yeah, there's your Akira talk about the, uh, the astonishing background, line work, architectural detail. But Miller says, am I reading a story or going to class? Yeah. And he compares it with somebody like Jeff Darrow, who he calls an absurdist. And, uh, you know, like that level of detail that Darrow brings, it actually makes that world into some bizarre, you know, the, like, like the world of the comics or the world of the setting of the story that you're doing. So it's it's an interesting and subtle difference that he's suggesting. Yeah. I don't know if I totally agree with it or not. Like Akira is a tough one, I think, to use as your counterpoint example, because I have seen work that looks that way, where it's like, wow, that rendering is so precise. It is like an architecture book. Yeah. And Akira has that level, but I also think it moves. It does
0: move. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> probably the shortest chapter in, in the joint kink and freedom. Uh, and so they're in Eisner's studio. And one of the pieces uh, that Eisner has hanging up is the famous spank panel <laughs> spank splash.
1: Yeah. Print a print of this. And he has the original art in his house. How <laughs> much is that piece
0: worth? Yeah, man. I mean, it's iconic. It's so rough too. Like this is not what Eisner becomes. This is like pre-war spirit looking shit right here. You
1: know what it is? But I was looking at like some of the fine line work and stuff and it reminded me of Dave Stevens. Mm-hmm. Cause like, you'll see the folds will have like really fine feathering coming off of like the folds and spirits uh, sleeve yeah. and stuff. And it kind of, that's kind of where my mind went.
0: Yeah, when you see stuff like the, these knee pieces, man, that's Lou Fine. Yeah. He's getting, Lou, like, Lou Fine drapery, who was considered the baddest-ass motherfucker of the studio. You know
1: what? That makes me wonder if Lou Fine inked a lot of this. Because oh, Because that be is right. what you're seeing is that fine line everywhere.
0: Lou's fine line? Could be. And then, uh, Izer, I mean, Miller just brings up, you know what really the kinkiest piece of art you ever made was? Where the two guys, Spirit and Dolan, are talking about control, how to control your woman... And it's two lady like they're they're standing in the hand the palm of some 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 dame.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Now this is more mature, like this is like Eisner as as I know him, you know, this is post war. After P.S. Magazine, Will Eisner, right there.
1: And Lou Fine does come up here, you know. They do mention Lou Fine and his uh, his inking abilities. Yeah. This is pretty cool stuff. Talking about like uh, building his stories. And uh, starting with these pencil sketches and uh, one kind of note that's unrelated is Miller is looking at these pencil sketches and is like, Hey man, the back of this paper is like photocopied and Eisner reveals that he saves that kind of paper because you know, he came out of the depression. I can remember reading stuff about depression era cartoonists like uh, Schuster, Siegel and Schuster and how like, you know, their dad would bring home wallpaper samples or something and they'd be, or calendars and they'd be drawn on the back of them because like even paper, we're so lucky. You know, what we have access to, you take it for granted, but, like, you can find a lot of stories of these people from the early days of comics that
0: were, like, whatever they could find to draw on. When, my pops, when I was a little boy, man, my pops was a security guard, and he would just bring back scraps, like, like you know, boxes full of scrap paper, and I would be like, I can't draw on this. There's stuff on there. He's like, flip it. Yes. You can draw on that. No problem. I used to get people
1: would give me, like, uh, whatever paper they would find, like, some weird notebook or something like that. And at the time it was like, uh, okay, you know, I have a bunch of these notepads stored up that I'm never going to use, but it's a legacy. Yeah. You know, it's that older, it was older people that would give it to me. They knew I liked to draw. And here's, you know, here's this book or whatever that they found cleaning out there some, somewhere. But it's that legacy of like, you didn't have it all the time in their life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, you know, take it to the extreme with like Henry Darger who just used butcher paper and scraps that he found, man. And it just turns out that stuff is archival. The idea of pencil is not a drawing mechanism. Like that, that's a that's a fun, that's a fun idea that I can actually kind of relate to because I'm so far removed from doing tight pencils. And uh, Miller describes it like a like a the stylus in old Renaissance artwork where you're just kind of making indications for things. And that, but the, the 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 pen is the actual drawing tool. You know, these are guys of a generation like that's probably not the case any longer um for a lot of people because you can just print stuff in pencil if you so choose i don't see those kinds of comics very often or whatever but uh, i think in those terms like i if you tasked me with doing like a tight pencil it would be i would have to tune my brain into that because i just i just don't do that but they describe eisner is saying stuff like yeah you you want to you want to suggest with the pencil and and then get the get the you know the feeling the emotion with the ink and on the uh I was thinking about the Dark Knight Returns documentary that kind of came with the DVD Klaus Janssen described his inking approach as uh like being an actor where you learn the lines and then you forget the lines and bring your some of your own energy to the thing and I think that's a great way To describe Klaus Janssen's inking. Yeah. You know, like that's the expressiveness of that inking where there's chunky stuff going on and interesting lines happening. This
1: spread, they're really talking about like laying out their stories, writing their stories. Eisner doing a little bit more of the the layouts in pencil, Uh, Miller doing it on the wall, as he says. We have videos, uh, if you find, you know, if you're interested in this topic, we have videos of. Eisner's sketchbooks where they reproduce several of his I think what he's describing here, you know, like the roughs of his graphic novels and stories and you can see them in that chunky pencil and and, and really see what he's describing here as well as the art of Sin City where you can see Miller's approach yes. which he's talking about refining in ink and you can really see those pencils that are almost indecipherable. You know, it's very loose just like I'm going to put down 30 lines and then I'm going to pull out the right one. Yeah. So you can find a lot more of that on our channel.
0: Yeah, here's a real telling piece, too, man. So here's here's the Eisner rough, and here's the finished piece. So you could see he's not just, like, inking in this brick. You know, he's making decisions all along the way, creating different 3Ds and and elements, you know, in different... And he's even, like, doing redrawing. Sure. Uh, in, in the ink stage, you know? Well, they talk...
1: You know, part of the reason Eisner says he works that way, like on the left, is because he's selling this to publishers. And this is the version that he's possibly shopping. And uh, Miller's kind of appalled by that. Like, you're showing publishers that? Miller seems to really express distrust of publishers. Makes me think of old wrestlers and the way they talk about promoters. You know, like they were at odds with each other. Right. And it seems like that's Miller's attitude towards publishers. Whereas like Eisner, Eisner is working with publishers. He's not working with Marvel and DC. You know, he's working with publishers in Europe and publishers around the world and book publishers. It's a much different relationship than what Miller is coming from. Yeah. But that's part of the reason he works that way in building the stories so
0: that he can show. Eisen is a real artist, man, because he holds <clears> his yeah. pencil that way. Look <laughs> yes. at that. I'm always fascinated by that. And I think it was like Dick Giordano says, you never, ever, ever use your wrist. Like, if you, if you use your wrist while you're drawing, like, you're going to have a short career. you got to use the shoulder.
1: Right. And, you know, Eisner, he says, I don't do tight pencils. I compose or lay out a story. Like he's writing in that draw stage. Yeah. Which is not that different than what Miller's describing. You know, like, it's almost like we're we're using words that mean a little bit different, but we're kind of saying the same thing.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, they're hitting the same approach. Eisner is a page at a time guy. He puts a page together and then moves on to the next one. Miller is a dude like after that Family Values and we're going to fuck these titles up. Yes, family we are. Yeah, family Values and Family Matters. <laughs> uh, I, uh, Miller is a dude that's going to like write out a story, pencil the story, letter the story and then various stages of inking. Touch every single page with some ink, lay down the heavy black areas to start. And this is an example of that. And then go in with the fine lines. So so he kind of like is touching a lot of pages at once. And that that baffles Eisner's uh, way of thinking. Uh, I don't know how you work, Jimmy, but for my own kind of psychology, I'm more in the Eisner camp of my production process because to like have a finished page at the end of the day, it gives me some idea where I'm at in my process. Touching 100 pages at a time in various stages of completion, I don't know when this will ever be done i have no idea how my progress is doing i don't know if i put in a legit day
1: if i am working on my own i do pages Mm -hmm. maybe i do spreads but i like the idea of like it's a new process each time yeah whenever i did plain Jane's with little brown it was like they that's how they they worked it was here are all my layouts here are all my finished pages and uh it's i think it's faster but i like doing the page by page because like there are things that I don't know about yet, you know, and there might be things that emerge as you're thinking about this stuff and building it. And also I just found it keeps my brain more engaged. Mm-hmm. Like I used to do inking and I would do it at the end of the days because it was like, I can be a little bit tired and in Yeah. but I can't be tired and do layouts. Right. And so I want that part in the process. If I can have it, you know, I think it is organic and it keeps me connected as Eisner says to the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, light has come up again. Miller's talking about lettering and stuff in uh, Eisner mentions the light boxes, and I feel like, oh yeah, it's a callback to chapter beginning of Chapter 6, you know, when they're talking about Will Eisner's
0: light box, because light boxes have become a bigger tool for me in the last couple of years. And here's some examples of uh, the Frank Miller approach, where he says that uh, he just has mounds of tracing paper everywhere. And he'll do one panel on one piece of tracing paper, do another other panels on other pieces of tracing paper. Uh, He'll blend the two and then put a piece of tracing paper over top of that and then make one one big panel. Uh, And here's an example like this is clearly sharpie marker on top of these like kind of very sketch faces to, to sort of sell you on the main form. And then when he goes in, he does a Sin City treatment over top, and like it's it's pretty astonishing, like how finished these drawings are to <clears throat> to what what we inevitably see.
1: Yeah, I like I like seeing it, and we looked at that Art of Sin City, and I was a little disappointed when that book came out. Yeah, not but enough
0: of the not enough of this. It, like it makes sense here. Yeah, yeah, just it, it, that Art of Sin City book would be so much better if it was this kind of stuff more often, not like five pages of it. You know, I feel like the same themes come up. Couple of
1: chapters ago, they were talking about you know, uh, manga being like really movies on paper, and this idea of how much is cinema influencing you. And uh, now we're going to get a whole chapter dedicated to these concepts. Same with the theater, and Will Eisner talking about some of his ideas originating in the WPA theater scene of, uh, of his youth. So it's kind of neat to see these these same themes playing out again and again, maybe from slightly different angles.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. He because he calls he says that that. Uh, the theater is, is closer to comics than, than, than film. And, he, and the, what he describes to me feels specious in a way because... I agree with you. Because, it, because he says that uh, watching the theater is like an active participation, like the active participation of lingering on panels, looking back and forth on panels, turning the page. I mean, it's as passive as, as film. Why not?
1: You know what, man? The activity level, I think, intellectually is all about the content of what you're seeing on that stage or on that film screen. Because yeah. there are movies that you watch and it's like they linger in your head for a while. You've got to answer some stuff yourself. You've got to make certain connections yourself. That can happen in other media besides theater. Yeah. And besides that, like reading is a gigantic act of like you've got to compose some of this stuff in your head or make your panels come alive. So I, I agree with you. I don't I can't totally see Eisner's point of view on this. I do think early comics, like comic strips, are clearly pulling from theater.
0: Yeah, and vaudeville and things.
1: Yeah, because it's full figures. You know, you're not getting some of the close-ups and cuts and stuff that that film would introduce to our visual vernacular. Yeah. Uh, But beyond that, I I can't quite understand exactly what he's saying there.
0: Miller was in a conversation with Klaus Jansen at SVA celebrating Will Eisner, and he says on stage, referencing this book, uh, that he tried time and time again to get Eisner to admit that Orson Welles was an influence, because uh, like when you see those spirit comics, down shots, up shots, you see the molding on the tin ceilings or whatever, like all this kind of thing, like, that—that is—that is a function of what Orson Welles brought to the table with Citizen Kane. Uh, new techniques were developed for that flick. Uh, couldn't couldn't get Eisner to budge, man. I but, find that shocking because.
1: To me, Citizen Kane is such an outgrowth of, of, of his radio dramas, specifically War of the Worlds, but it's still that piece of like, I'm gonna put two images next to each other in Citizen Kane, and you're gonna have to connect those in your head. And that whole movie is built that way. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's visual storytelling, like that's foundation, you know, like that may even be the moment of switching from theater being the influence on comics to movies really taking over.
0: <laughs> you know, to, to go back to to the tongue in cheek, Hitchcock Truffaut conversation, um Hitchcock in that conversation with Truffaut basically said that like the only real cinema is silent films like as soon as we started introduce Mm -hmm. dialogue and things like uh it became too much of a crutch too much too much was uh left up to the tell rather than the show and he saw the silent film as as being um superior to talkies and I, I think that that's just an old dude talking. And, and just like Eisner is like used to this thing. I've, I was watching some uh, a Carl Barks interview, and you know he he was talking about how he still wished he kids these days would do well to have a one room schoolhouse where a bunch of uh, you know first graders are in there with tenth graders. Like it's just it's what you know.
1: There's a documentary about that from uh, from like a French school that does that. Yeah. Like I I, I don't know that that's as outlandish as obviously outlandish as it may seem well
0: you know what what carl barks was saying and it does the sound like a pro is that uh is that a little kid listening in on a chemistry conversation ain't a bad thing right
1: yeah i think also when you have that you have some of the older kids being mentors obviously or or subtly yeah and uh just hearing the same information through different slight variations how a lot of people learn right like you can hear the same thing seven times and one of them clicks this is a cool sequence with the car accident and stuff talking about pacing yes um, some some fun ideas there and uh, even eisner seems kind of it piques his interest the, this concept of like dragging this out and making it felt and It looks really cool. As examples here, yeah, this makes me want to revisit Family. Oh, we're going to. We have to really badly because I was disappointed in that when I first read it, and now like reading some of these ideas, it's like, yeah, let me give that another look.
0: And look at this. It's it's a it's a different approach than like the three page sequence when Goldie's Jack and Marv up because it's just like hit hit hit. Mm -hmm. This is slowing time down. Yes, the roll up and the dismount. And he does this stuff in other Sin City,
1: too. Like, he really plays with that kind of timing and pages. and Yeah, like I said, makes me want to revisit that book a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you said so, because like I was thinking that while, while reading this, too. And to be honest, I haven't read every uh, Eisner book. Um, I want to check out some of this other stuff. I mean, that's what I did with Hitchcock Truffaut, man. Just, like, listen to a, a, a gang of um, Hitchcock talk and go see the movies he just talked about.
1: Talking about pacing here, you know, like um, they're complaining about manga how like there's no there's the the pace is so fast there's no point at which I can stop and linger on it. And Miller's saying the obvious way is for people to start talking. Yeah, um, you know we've we've had people talk about like you have that super detailed background that'll slow you down. Um, increasing the number of panels on the page, you know, so it's kind of neat to think about the mechanics of the actual you can
0: manipulate speed a little bit. Eisner's thoughts, man, most of the plots being written in comics today are built on one very simple theme, pursuit and vengeance. And then he, he lays that on, uh, on Miller. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it does feel like Miller defends himself too much with it. Like, accept it and move on.
1: I can't remember when this came up, if it's something that we've said in the past or if it's in this book or somewhere else, but this idea that like Eisner liked to debate let's say. And so I think that's how you might get that defensive tone because it does feel like that's a different, even conversationally, there's some differences in the way Eisner comes at Miller.
0: Mm -hmm. A reviewer said my Family Matters uh, book had a checkoff quality to it. (laughs) Does that make you want to read his Family Matters book (laughs) and and take a look and see? (laughs) Hey man, I'm game. I'm I'm down for it. I don't need convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Good sequence here, man with uh yes the the sort of young family member helping the guy in his like uh suicide euthanasia
1: this comes up in response to Eisner sort of uh you know talking about the vengeance and pursuit stuff in Miller's work and it and it gets into like you know like this is still this is a mercy killing they're calling it but it's a huge character piece and it is how do you it's a good example of how you might do killing in in a comic in very different tones and different ways yeah
0: one of the things that eisner wanted to work on with that project was to make people do things out of their own kind of self-interest but you can't make them pure evil like like let's not deal with pure evil yeah any longer like they're they're victims of their own character i think he called it and both of them, you know, we talk
1: about family matters and family values in this chapter. Family is really the focus that they're sort of like looking at these different stories through these different lens, but family is the centerpiece of their commonality. Yeah. And it is pretty interesting the way they come at it and, and how much range they're able to get from this similar subject. Right. This is a good conversation. This is a good
0: chapter. I feel like this next chapter is pretty good too, man. The idea of color technology, because it's really not relegated. Just to color like we we talked color before and This is more we could just call it technology technology the conversation basically is about how comics is the bastard of Everything it's a victim of all kinds of stuff. It's a it's a victim of history It's a victim of print technology Uh, It's always five steps behind what what the cutting edge is or whatever one of the one of my favorite pieces is like when when Miller's talking about he wanted to do full bleeds. Like, he and Lynn Varley, they went to the chemical color factory, man. They went to that little Connecticut house with the old ladies cutting the co- coloring sep- separations. And he, and the way he described it is how I see it in my head as kind of a sweatshop of just these, like, matronly ladies with their Miyazaki aprons on. Sad-looking women, Cut in
1: it. Uh, Miller's words here.
0: It, it, it sounds like... I, I picture the ladies at the chemical color uh, company being kindred spirits with the Kalinsky Sable like Raphael late Russian ladies who are like putting the horsehair into the <laughs> right into the what's it Pharaoh Pharaoh yes. uh, and going blind doing so you know just they're, they're kindred spirits man we we could probably achieve world peace if we get those Russian ladies together with our Connecticut ladies and uh, come come to some some agreements. <laughs> I don't think we can even get sable hair from Russia like like
1: for years I think there's been a ban on it yeah there was some I I think it was uh, in the UK there was a woman who was making hand making sable hair brushes at an affordable price and they were man great brushes from what I've heard I never bought one and I I should have ordered a stack of them because they were they were cheap like I say comparable to the Raphael's but good reviews
0: online yeah, so uh, Miller and Lynn Varley like went there uh, to sort of see what was possible with color, see what you could do, and to Miller's astonishment, yeah, this is he he he's been wanting to do full bleeds in comics for a long, long time, and he goes there and he discovers that the only reason you can't do full bleeds at that time was because the photo stack camera that they had had too small a lens, like it was a hundred dollar fix, which could be just tongue in cheek. Maybe it was a thousand dollar fix. The point was they kept the medium sort of relegated to that confined space for, because of a simple technical issue and everybody just accepted it. Um, There's a lot of this talk about the idea of comics is like, is like um, if you don't do what was done yesterday, we have to. We have to have a meeting about that. Like it's an issue. If you want to try to do something new,
1: it makes me so mad reading this kind of stuff. Yeah. Because this is not the only story like this in comics. You right. knew Adams could write a book on the stuff that he would. He would kick the door down to be able to use yellow screen tone or whatever. This makes me so furious. Because anytime I propose something somewhere, the answer is always no to start with. Yeah. And then you've got to be the pest. You've got to dig in. You have to research how it's done and try to convince this person. And whenever they go up the ladder, most of the time it's like, oh yeah, sure, we can do that. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, why didn't you just ask the printer in the first place? Right. Why do I have to jump through the hoops? Right. And also it's your job. Yeah. Like you should be telling me about this. Yes. It, it's infuriating.
0: It's it's like when we work with these publishers it's like we should we need to get something for our money man because we're cutting them in on a big chunk you know what i'm saying like you get your 10 12% of whatever you're you want some expertise with that uh, and you do have to fucking chime in a bunch with with like a, with a lot of things and uh, i do Consider it a badge of honor. I know you've had this happen one time or two. I've had it happen one time or two I know what you're gonna say <laughs> when the printer makes the call back. Yes, and it's like Are you sure you won it this way? <laughs> it's like yes, you know, you did it right man at least, you know, it's gonna look different. Yes <laughs> So one of the examples that Eisner lays out is he has his characters this ghost character So he just wants a, like what we call a surprint. You know, it's the establishment of the serpent, the invention of the serpent. And it's existed in advertising. Like you could look in any old magazine and you see just like a field of red type or yellow type or something. Uh, He wanted this ghost character, no black line. Printer goes, yo, you have to have a black line. And Eisner says, no, you don't. Just this area right here, erase that from the black plate. And uh, the guy's like, but that's wrong and Iser basically just said, fucking do it anyway, click. And then he did it and he got what he wanted. I, it makes me so mad, Ed.
1: <laughs> this is the stuff that fires me up because it's just, it's inertia. Yeah. it might be risk com- com- aversion. Com- complacency. It might be lazy. Like it's all these things that are no good. And they talk about the context of comics just not being considered even on a level of like illustration. Right. You know, because you you do see this in every all these other printing areas, but not comics. Yeah, it's it's uh, very very frustrating.
0: First time I worked with Lynn was on an issue of Daredevil one ninety one. She colored it on acetate with Doc Martin dyes. The next issue, the next book we did together was Ronin. She did with gouache on blue lines, man. That's jumping in head first. She saw what the limits were. And then she, uh, you know, rejoiced in having more ability. And even Ronan, compared to Dark Knight is conservative. Because it might as well, in some instances, be for color process. Right. Flat color.
1: Goes on to say, except for 300, you know, like she kept working blue line except for 300, which was painted on black lines. And, uh, that's a very similar process for anybody at home. It's literally a gray line instead of a light blue line. Um, and then DK two is the first thing she's done digitally and Miller observes. It's amazing. The number of tools he's seen her use while his have stayed the same, right? It's an interesting observation. And, and I think you see it continue to play out on, uh, on Wednesdays, you know, on new comic days, like there's such a value in what he calls that line density, but it's a worshiping of the inking. Like talk about fetishization. Like it's it's more pronounced in my opinion than than the figure work.
0: Can we talk about how old Eisner is? Because his shit was printed at the start on letter presses, dude. Yes. Can you imagine before offset printing?
1: It's uh talk about a different world. Jesus. Yeah. Just pressing stuff into a piece of paper. It's cool, though, where they go with this part, because they're talking about how like now they're coloring comics with photo retouching programs. Right. And that they're these scavengers, comic creators, the scavengers just taking whatever tech they can find and figuring out how to bend it a little bit to accommodate
0: comics. I mean, remember the days when you were young, and you want, you want to get better at comics, right? So, like, there would be... You know, whenever the high school is down for the summer and they have like the little intramurals, summer courses that can be done, I want to grow up to be a cartoonist. So let's see what kind of classes there are: drawing, painting, sculpture. There's not cartooning class, so you do that. The Ames lettering guide is an architecture tool. French curves, whatever the fuck they're for. It ain't for comics. Like all of these tools, it's it's hacking. It is.
1: Eisner says we're
0: adapters. Yes. (laughs) A glass is half full guy
1: and a glass is half empty guy. I I think it's a really interesting observation. And, you know, I mean, that's why, like, if you sat down and talked to a bunch of artists, especially today, comic book artists, very different
0: processes and tools. Here it is, man. When Lynn and I went to Chemical Color, it was a really depressing thing. I saw the reason I was told I wasn't allowed to do bleeds off the sides of the page. And it was uh, an undersized frame on the camera. It would have cost about a hundred bucks to replace, and that kept us from doing bleeds for decades.
1: This is the sound of me throwing the book against the wall in frustration.
0: <laughs> and then, and then it, uh, you know, I, and then we celebrate, um, you know, Dan Klaus thinking about like printing on the inside of the slipcase and stuff, and just like pushing things that degree and, and thinking and asking those questions.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting perspective from a couple of guys who, you know, saw comics evolve quite a bit uh, over the course of their careers. You know, like so much of what we take for granted, like just walls built against it for no good reasons.
0: Here's the sign off, man. After the the Will Eisner ghost story, um, if there ever was a theme song Hmm. uh, for the business end of the industry, it's, quote, we can't do that. We didn't do it yesterday, end quote. (laughs) And Eisner says, quote, we never did that before. No one ever does that. It's not done, end quote. Uh, but that was something that was considered revolutionary at the time. Back to the uh, Serpent. The thing that, like, think about this. Think about the amount of surprints and stuff in the Daredevil mm-hmm. books for depth of field, for background details. Klaus Janssen yes. t- takes that ball and run, runs with it. Perhaps if Eisner doesn't do that, they don't see that. They don't think that that's a tool in the toolbox. That's that's fascinating. That's a, that's a connection I just put together right here on the spot, man.
1: Yeah, it's quite a legacy there that, that you see play out in Miller a generation later, as you say. It's great. Uh, one other note on this chapter is Miller talks about the graphic novel, Electra Lives Again, and uh, attempt to do horror in full color. The, the, right? He describes it, and it was not dark. The ent- entire thing is set in daylight. The idea was just to get under people's skins in different ways with the color. That's pretty cool, man. That's
0: a fantastic exercise, right? Like, let's make a horror comic and do things completely different. Like, create a set of obstacles for yourself that you've not seen explored very often in that kind of a genre.
1: Yeah, I like seeing Miller look at these books that way. Yeah. Like, this is something I'm trying to do in this book. You know, and he's talks a lot about family matter family values and the stuff he's trying to do there. It's cool to think of him as like approaching these stories and really thinking like, how do you push this? What is the theme of this book? Yeah. How do we get there visually? Yeah. It's good stuff. It makes sense why his comics do stand out compared
0: to a lot of his peers. That's true. Fun conversation. Reading the Eisner-Miller conversation is good. Uh, I also very much appreciate the conversation with you, Jimmy, and we'll keep this rocking. And And everybody,
1: if you're tuning in for the first time, there is a part one. Yes. Um, You know, we do cover some other chapters already, and and we'll keep uh, adding those links under these videos as we continue adding to this
0: conversation. Absolutely, and we want to hear your feedback uh, on the subjects that are brought up in this video. Uh, Till then, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jim? Hulk Grand Design Monster Number One is coming to your comic book
1: store in March. Hulk Grand Design Madness Number One coming to your comic book store in April. Let your comic shop owner know that you want a copy. It's not too late to pre-order those books. And join me
0: on Patreon.com/slash JimRug. Red Room Trigger Warnings Issue Number One on the stands right now. Going to be coming out on a monthly basis. Murder on the Dark Web for. Fun and Profit is the name of the game, man. Uh, so four issues of this will be coming out monthly basis. You could read these comics before they hit paper at my Patreon at the link in the link tree in the description below this video. Three bucks for the archive there, more than 200 pages of comics up there as we speak. What else, Jim?
1: Subscribe to the Cartoonist Fabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also
0: find Cartoonist Fabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. It's another great way to support the Cartoonist Fabe channel. Jimmy, give them the marching orders. We'll be on our way. Make more comics.